millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. It is 8.30 on Monday, October 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier. On today's show, many new mothers experience postpartum depression after giving birth. Doctors are trying to find new ways to reach people who are at the greatest risk. The Mississippi Secretary of State shares how folks can vote absentee in this year's general election. Plus, a study says expanding broadband access could return $43 million to the Delta through telemedicine visits. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A mental health program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center is developing a new project to help mothers, soon to be mothers as well. It's called Champs for Moms. It works with doctors throughout the state to help with mental health care questions they may have and where they can find resources. The program gives doulas all care providers working with treating pregnant and new mothers a resource. Dr. Courtney Walker is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at UMMC. She says around one in eight women with a recent live birth experience postpartum depression. Postpartum depression, we don't really understand it that well and how it's so much different than um, depression in general. But there is some evidence to suggest that there, the hormonal fluctuations that women experience during pregnancy and then after can play a role. Obviously, if you have a history of depression or other mental health concerns, if you have a history of trauma or you had a traumatic birth experience or your child was in the um, neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU, those are risk factors for developing clinical postpartum depression or um, another uh, mental health disorder, um, but we just know what makes you a little bit more at risk. We don't really understand the mechanism that causes it. Then how do you treat it? Typically, the recommendation is that you would treat uh, postpartum depression similar how you would um, another uh, like major depressive disorder. So the first step is to identifying it and screening and making sure that we're catching moms um, early on. Most moms experience what we call the baby blues, and so that tends to mimic depressive symptoms up until two weeks post-delivery. But anything two weeks on, if a mom is still experiencing those clinical symptoms of depression, we would consider that postpartum depression. So the first step is screening and just identifying it. Um, Referring to mental health therapy 
is always recommended. And, you know, for some moms, a medication consultation uh, may be needed. Our CHAMP line is going to connect uh, pregnancy care providers, and so that's a broad term. We are primarily going to focus on physicians, but this service is also going to be available to doulas, lactation consultants, other mental health therapists that do interact with moms in the postpartum period. And so it'll be able to connect those providers who are actually seeing moms in real time to people who have expertise in this area to better inform what those recommendations may be. And so, again, like I said, mental health therapy, psychiatric consultation may be needed as well. For moms who have more severe symptoms, uh, we haven't even talked about postpartum psychosis. Um, and so that's another uh, condition that we need to be on high alert for because that would require a higher level of care to make sure the mom has what she needs. CHAMP stands for Child Access to Mental Health and Psychiatry. How many people can this program afford to help, and how are you going to structure it? The program is going to be statewide, just like our CHAMP program that we have for child and adolescent mental health. um, We contact and Uh, provide uh, consultation to physicians all over the state. And so our goal is going to be that we have at least some sort of presence statewide. You know, we have about uh, 581,000 moms who are of childbearing age in Mississippi, so that's a pretty good chunk. Um, So we're hoping that we at least have some touch uh, for all of those moms and make sure that they have access at least through this consultation line to ensure that they get evidence-based care for any postpartum mental health needs. This is a service to help practitioners. So mm-hmm. patients can't take advantage of this individually on their own. Correct. We are trying to uh, create that learning network amongst the providers in the community so we can get more access out there. There will be some opportunities for uh, moms, specifically moms who have substance use disorder, to be connected to a peer support specialist. Um, So that would be more direct care for moms, um, but it wouldn't be um, direct uh, mental health therapy, if that makes sense. I see. We're really trying to, to build up our state workforce in this area because, as you know, we're underserved in every county, uh, and including maternity care, and most importantly, perinatal mental health care, in my experience. And um, we need more of our folks out in the community trained on how to best care for mothers in this period so they can provide that care to um, in the communities in which they live. Um, and a lot of these moms have those trusted relationships with those providers already, so it's a little easier for moms to seek out care with those folks versus someone um, that they've never met before. This makes me wonder in areas where there are very few health care providers, this is not going to help as many patients because there aren't enough providers to plug into this to begin to network out. Well, and that's why we're opening it up to pregnancy care providers in general. Obviously, we have an emphasis on medical providers, but by uh, we're also going to be recruiting doulas, home visitors, lactation consultants, um, pediatricians even, because pediatricians have a lot of contact with moms in that postpartum period. 
So we're going beyond the scope of just OBGYNs, and we're really trying to touch every provider that interacts with moms in this, uh, in this period. So we're trying to cast a really wide provider net, network or net to make sure that we try to increase access um, to moms, especially moms who don't have access to OBGYN care in their communities. Because How are you going to do that in really rural areas? We go out into communities and we figure out who's out there. Um, and we try to make that relationship with whoever is out there doing that work. And like I said, you know, sometimes it's not going to be your traditional uh, medical provider. It might be a uh, doula or a home visitor. Um, we have great home visiting programs, um, especially in the Mississippi Delta. Um, there's a, a program called the, um, it's the Delta Health Alliance Healthy Start Initiative that's run in partnership with Tuzula University. And so they cover the seven uh, areas of our Mississippi Delta, and they have um, it's a home visiting program that's been around since the 90s. And so we're also going to be networking with them because they're serving uh, our most underserved population as it is. Uh, that We hope that we can cast that large net and provide access through those mechanisms as well. Dr. Courtney Walker is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at UMMC. Coming up, Mississippi's Secretary of State shares how folks can vote absentee in this year's general election. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? Now you know, when I talk about my mama... I talk about my mama. I don't say my mother. Mm -hmm. I say my mama. But if I get out here to fix my mouth and say this book represents me and my family, my ancestors, I better get it right. Right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Registered voters who will not be able to go to the polls and vote in the upcoming November general election, October 7th, are now eligible to vote absentee. You can always vote absentee. Mail-in ballots. No. Oh, I said October 7th. I meant November 7th. Mail-in ballots are available for folks temporarily residing outside of their district with permanent disabilities, are caretakers of someone hospitalized, and any person aged 65 years or older. Our Will Stribling speaks with Secretary of State Michael Watson about absentee voting. He says people can register to vote by printing out the form and mailing it into the local circuit clerk's office. And in the future, he'd like to see the state pass a law allowing for online voter registration. There's been some legislative efforts. Uh, Senator Blackwell, Representative Summers uh, have both introduced the, that legislation. So that kind of started some conversations. After I saw it introduced, uh, one of the first phone calls I made was to Ohio, uh, Secretary LaRose in Ohio, uh, where they have it in law there. I basically started asking, look, what are the pros and cons? What are, what are the good things that we know about this? Are there any concerns? Uh, and really, you know, it, it turns out you get better records uh, because folks are entering it online as opposed to somebody scribbling and then somebody trying to <laughs> transcribe over. You get uh, better records, uh, obviously the ease uh, of doing online voter registration. And then uh, third, it basically saves money because you get away from some of the paper filing. Uh, and then he, he also said, look, what you really need to understand is this basically tracks the breakdown of your current state. It doesn't. 
advantage either party. The issue here is uh, with, with anything, sometimes you have things that are new. Uh, sometimes you hear the word online and people just kind of shy away. Wait a minute, you know, got to be careful there. Uh, and this is not online voting. This is simply online voter registration. We almost have it now. You basically go online, you can uh, print your form out, send it in, and once you're registered, you can change anything you want in your, in your voter registration on our website now. So it's really close, not that far of a jump. So when you have these legislators introduce it, our office started doing some research and understanding, wait, what exactly is it? Is this good or is it bad? And uh, we've got to the point now where uh, I, I'm supportive of the idea. The one hitch that now has kind of come into play is AI. So how is AI going to impact online voter registration? And I think we've got to be very careful with guardrails on that. Uh, I think we can do it. Uh, we just we just got to be smart about it. Uh, but if you ask uh, the legislators that have filed it before, they'll tell you. We've, we've visited with them about it. We've talked to them about it. Um, it's just getting to the point of educating the general public, making sure we do it wisely, and, uh, again, now thinking about AI and how that's going to impact it. So I think you'll see it sooner than later. But, again, that's something that the legislature's got to pass. I cannot do that unilaterally. You've got to get Republicans and Democrats all together and uh, pass a piece of legislation. Without that, it's not going to be law. So early voting for the November elections, uh, who's eligible, when can they do it, and how do they do it? Yeah, so I would encourage folks to go to our website, uh, y'allvote.ms, and get all that information there. But basically there are eight ways uh, to vote absentee. There are eight reasons for which you can vote absentee and four absentee by mail. Uh, so I won't run through all those, but I would tell them to go to y'allvote.ms and make sure uh, to read that. If you have any questions, please reach out to our office or your circuit clerk. Uh, really important because we're seeing a large effort uh, now from uh, you know different bad actors with cybersecurity. So I encourage people, not just this issue, but any question they have, please reach out to us or your circuit clerk to make sure you're getting verified information. That's Secretary of State Michael Watson. Mail-in absentee ballots must be received by November 14th, and people can vote absentee at their circuit clerk's office through November 4th. But for all of the information that you may need or have questions about, visit website yallvote.ms. That's yallvote.ms. Coming up, expanding broadband access could return $43 million a year through telemedicine visits, according to a new study. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Want to keep up with MPB? Go to mpbonline.org, or you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at mpbonline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is prepared to spend $1.2 billion in federal funding to build out broadband access to the most rural areas of our state. During the pandemic, Internet access became more important than ever for remote work, school, and doctor's visits. And it As it currently stands, nearly 269,000 homes and businesses throughout Mississippi have no Internet access. Olita Garrett Fitzgerald is Southern Regional Director at the Children's Defense Fund. She says the demand for telehealth boomed during the pandemic. Well before COVID, uh, SRBWI was concerned about access to affordable and quality and reliable 
broadband services in these rural communities, uh, and particularly the impact that it was having on children and families who lived there. Prior to COVID, our focus uh, on expanding broadband was linked to educational opportunities for children, particularly in the K-12 education system. Then COVID hit, and we realized that not only was education impacted, but healthcare access was gravely impacted by the inabilities of so many families to take advantage of telehealth services, given the situation we were in. So going back to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, and Rye Marcella will be on in just a minute to discuss the report. We shifted the, the emphasis of the report to telehealth care because not only did it talk about how broadband was, was, could be so instrumental in providing health services in these healthcare deserts, uh, but it also talks about, this report talks about the cost savings that uh, can be uh, benefited from providing health care, telehealth services uh, that would allow counties and municipalities to save money that then could be reinvested in the resources needed to expand broadband. Fitzgerald helped to produce a report with the Southern Rural Black Women's Initiative for Economic and Social Justice. That organization, that report, found that telemedicine could generate more than $11.5 million each year in the rural counties of Sunflower and LaFleur alone if everyone had access to high-speed Internet. Fitzgerald says it could save lives and help folks who don't have access to a doctor on a regular basis any other way. Our initial focus was on rural electric cooperatives in serving those areas and trying to get them to get involved in expanding uh, quality, affordable, uh, reliable broadband. Uh, as we were coming through COVID and coming through federal infrastructure legislation, uh, we then realized uh, that uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia were, would be receiving uh, combined over nearly $4 billion in broadband expansion resources coming through the uh, Department of Commerce's NTIA uh, Federal B program, which in Mississippi is, is being administered uh, through the BEAM office where Dr. Sally Doty is um, is uh, the person in charge. And again, let me say, we connected with the Community Broadband's uh, Institute for Local Self-Reliance because we knew our communities, we knew their needs, we knew little of nothing about broadband infrastructure, and we relied on them to provide the technical expertise and our backbone for this work. Chisa Lanier is a researcher with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She helped with this study to better understand the health needs of rural communities. We started with exploring the common health issues within those counties, and um, this was to justify the need for um, construction of a robust 
universal telehealth infrastructure based on the avoided costs for those chronic conditions, both acute, um, I'm sorry, both acute and chronic conditions that could be gained from implementing um, telehealth interventions. So we are grateful to have been placed with CDF. Um, we were able to incorporate our concentration and foundational competencies that we learned within the program. We were able to gain hands-on experience working in um, the public health field. Um, also, being connected with CDF, we were able to work on real-time issues um, affecting um, rural counties. So in Mississippi in particular, um, there's a risk of a number of hospitals closing. And um, with this, these areas are already medically underserved. So having broadband availability, accessibility, and, and affordability in these areas is dire because um, it would further create more healthcare deserts. Because there are so many areas in Mississippi with limited access to health care, community health centers have operated to fill those gaps. There are about 250 federally qualified health centers throughout the state. Joseph Grice is with the Community Health Center Association of Mississippi. Um, and so we had some, some pretty hands-on experience of telehealth, especially during the pandemic, uh, pre-pandemic, our uh, health centers across the state about 5% of total uh, community health center visits were done via telehealth. Most of that was uh, for behavioral health services. During pandemic, so summer of 2020, uh, we saw that percentage increase to 35 to 40%. Now, it's important to keep in mind that uh, nationally, we were also looking at what FQHCs were doing uh, across the country, and those percentages got as high as 70 75 percent of all visits. So uh, by no means do I, do I think uh, Mississippi uh, hit our ceiling. I think there's still lots of room for opportunity, but uh, community health centers were uh, really light on their feet and, uh, and were called to action and showed up and really uh, put the wheels in motion to make telehealth accessible for patients in Mississippi. In 2022, uh, our Mississippi Community Health Center saw 311,478 total uh, Mississippians, um, and that was over 1 million visits. About 50% of those uh, patients are at or below 100% of the federal poverty level. So we are talking about the underserved and uh, underinsured and uninsured in Mississippi. Um, 31% of the patients at community health centers uh, are completely uninsured, um, and about 30% are uh, Medicaid patients, uh, and with about 16% being uh, Medicare patients. Grice says telehealth became an essential part of their mission during the pandemic. Looking back at the pandemic, um, it, it's really hard to look back and find bright spots in something that was as, as tragic and as impactful as the pandemic. Um, but I, one bright spot that I always point out is uh, the rise of uh, telehealth access. We, I, I've always personally been a big believer in what telehealth can do and the, and the expanded access that it can provide to underserved Mississippians. Uh, and we saw that happen. We saw um, uh, providers across the state uh, really stepping up and, and providing that access. You, you know, some of the, the reasons that I think that we didn't perform as FQHCs nationally did, um, I, I, you know, I think just simply access to, to broadband in some of the rural areas in Mississippi. 
Um, I think also the underserved, underinsured patients a lot of times don't have access to smartphones or devices to actually to do those telehealth visits. And and sometimes it's even uh, patient or, or provider preference. But what we did see was that telehealth is a highly efficient way of providing primary care. Uh, to patients uh, in in not only in Mississippi but across the country. Uh, just a quick personal story. So uh, I am a, I'm a diabetic, have been for uh, eight nine years now, and um, obviously during the pandemic I was in that um, in that category of of. of predisposed or, or, or at higher susceptibility uh, or higher um, potential for uh, negative impacts of, of having COVID. So I was really reluctant, um, whether it's for a minor sick visit or any kind of visit, to, to go into a doctor's office. And so um, that my provider actually uh, did uh, begin providing telehealth for primary care visits and and it was fantastic for me. It was um, efficient for my time. It was efficient for the provider's time. Uh, it eased that concern I had about being exposed to to others in the clinics and and just being out in the in the general public. So um, so I'm a big believer in telehealth. Community health centers are believers in telehealth, and um, and we are uh, we are here to stay. Joseph Grice is with the Community Health Center Association of Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.